0: Okay, so um, basic terms and ideas. Let's go over these. These are, these are terms that you'll find in your How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth book. This is the textbook for those of you that weren't here last week. I recommend it. You don't have to order it, but if you want to build your library. The book I'm recommending is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, Nancy bought one. Rob bought one on Kindle. Maybe others bought one this week, I'm not sure. The two authors' last names are Gordon, or no, Fee and Stewart, and um, it's now in its fourth edition, but I have the second edition, and they're all fine. Okay, so what is eisegesis? Or sorry, exegesis. What's exegesis? What what letter? B. Okay, B. So how, how did you remember that? Exit, drawing out. Very good. What's eisegesis? The error of reading meaning into the biblical text. What would be an example of that? What would be an example of eisegesis? You think of one? Josh? Josh? Okay. I was, I was getting a little nervous here. I was wondering where you're... <laughs> I was starting to sweat. To throw this guy a lifeline. Okay. Do you remember the ridiculous one I gave you from uh, Esther? The king wrote his order, or the order is written to the people in the king's name. So I've actually heard a guy use that as an argument that the King James Version is superior because it's a version of the Bible written in the king's name. Okay, so reading in is not what we want to do. What's genre? What is it? Okay, C or B? Okay, C, a distinct type of literature, of which the Bible has several. What are some of the genres of the Bible? We haven't gotten into them, but you probably know some of them. Yep. Okay, apocalyptic, poetry, history, prophetic, Proverb, Psalms, yeah, okay, very good, epistle. Hermeneutics is, what is it? Science. The art and science of Bible study methods, exactly. Then some true or false stuff just out of the, the lecture we did on um, history of the Bible. This is going to spill over into our discussion, the first part of our discussion tonight about selecting a good translation. Uh, True or false, the Hebrew Old Testament was written between 1500 and 400? True. The Greek New Testament was written between 45 and 120? False. Okay, the last one was 95. Canonicity required New Testament books to bear apostolic authority? True. The Septuagint, also identified as the LXX, is an early Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. True. Most bo- modern Bible translations are superior because they have access to a greater number of ancient biblical manuscripts. True. Uh, sunny weather is a good reason to skip class. False. That—that's actually worth 20 marks. Uh, God re-inspired the translators of the King James Version, making it the only suitable version for English speakers. That weren't correct. That weren't correct. <laughs> False. It's very Anglo-centric, by the way. Um, God's first language is English, you all know. Approximately 6% of the Greek New Testament is subject to textual criticism. Not a lot of surety on that one. False. 1%. Okay, approximately one, 1%. one percent. Okay, you can give your friend a grade, smile at them, encourage them if they did poorly or did well. And um, if, you, if you didn't get one correct, if you didn't get one correct, make sure you make a mental note so that you don't get it incorrect again. Okay. So we're picking up in our notes from last week. Um, the broader heading is... i got to go back here. 1A, 8B. Okay, so we're talking about the history of the Bible. We discussed lectionaries. What are lectionaries? Ancient sermons or readings that were done in churches. How are those useful for determining the authenticity of the the original manuscripts? What do they record? Verses from ancient Bibles. So when you find the sermons and you find the ancient verses recorded, that's one tool that we use to determine what translations or manuscripts were being used in those particular times. Textual criticism, we talked about that. Uh, textual criticism is the tedious scientific work of comparing different schools of ancient biblical manuscripts to determine where the errors slipped in. And as I mentioned to you, there's, there were three major schools The Alexandrian texts are generally the best out of Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, then there's a Western school, there's actually a school in Caesarea as well, so these are the major schools of of, uh, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and now we're going to move into a, a brief discussion about the first English Bible, and again, some of this isn't directly relevant to Bible study methods, but it does help us to understand how translations came about, and helps us to be selective in the translations we use. So a priest by the name of John Wycliffe in and about thirteen eighty four made the first English translation of the Bible. Now, again, when we say English, we're talking seven hundred some odd years ago. So um, it wouldn't be English that you and I would have the capacity to read. But it was in fact the English the first official English translation of the Bible. Now, Wycliffe believed that the Bible should be available to the common English people, and so instead of translating from the Greek and Hebrew, which he did not have access to, he translated from the Latin Vulgate. Who who made the Latin Vulgate? We talked about this last week. Jerome. Jerome. So the Latin Vulgate was the official version of the Roman church right up until the, uh, the 20th century. And again... Uh we have Wycliffe utilizing it for translation purposes. You gotta keep in mind that the cost of manufacturing a book would have been incredibly expensive. There's no printing press, they're all handwritten by professional copyists. There's there's an art and science just to binding the things up. And then of course, distribution. There's no Canada Post, there's no FedEx, there's there's no Purillator. So a lot of these guys were born and died and had very limited access to to books. They were precious commodities. And they certainly did not have access to Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. So the first English translation is actually a translation of a translation. It's a translation of Latin, which would have come from the uh, Greek and Hebrew. Nevertheless, it was sufficient to communicate the essence of God's word to uh, Christians at the time. Later Bibles uh, included um, the famous William Tyndale. In 1526, he translated the Greek New Testament into English, despite being forbidden to do so by the Church of English. Why would a church uh, forbid someone from making a Bible translation during that period of time? Why do you think? Okay, power. The churches at the time were controlled or dominated by empires. So the Anglican Church was controlled by the British Empire. The Roman Church across Europe was controlled out of Rome. And there was a lot of politicking going on. Uh, These guys were not purists as we would consider ourselves, and that they had a heart and desire to see people come to know the gospel. They were running you know, political empires and religion was very much part of that. Well this poor fellow, as a result, was burned at the stake near Brussels in Belgium, and his work, nevertheless, including some of the portions he translated into, uh, of the Old Testament into English, were so good that virtually every other English translation up to our day and age has consulted or has some ties to Tyndale's work, which is pretty impressive. And then fast-forwarding another century, we have the famous King James Version, which many of us probably uh, grew up on, and um, this was commissioned by King James I of England. Keep in mind, he himself did not translate it, he commissioned it, and this is perhaps the most famous translation of all time. And it was very, 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 very well done for its day and age. Now, as I mentioned to you before, it is doubtful that King James was a Christian, as we would think of a born-again Christian. He involved himself publicly in homosexuality and other immoral activities. But he nevertheless employed some very capable and scholarly men to translate, to commission a translation of English Bible. And of course, he could pick the best of the best in Europe because he was a king and he had lots of money at his disposal. So he ultimately hired 54 scholars, 54 scholars to work on the King James Bible, and it took them seven years to come up with the translation. And it's considered one of the finest English Bibles for the following purposes Harmony, it's pretty consistent in its linguistic quality throughout. Style. Uh, it is artistic. It has a lot of poetic flair. And accuracy. Now, you got to keep in mind that the King James Bible does anybody have one tonight? Okay. So the King James Bible that you have is about the third or fourth revision. The new King James would be like the fourth or fifth. But several revisions have been made uh, to the original what we would call the original. Uh, king james bible nevertheless it endured to the present as a very popular version and then what are some of the other bibles that you are familiar with that have come about in the 20th century and coming into the 21st century what are some of the bibles that are used in this room just shout them out okay the niv the new inspired version new international version i should say the new living translation what's that the ESV. Brownie points to Susie. Um, so that's the English Standard Version. What else? American Standard. Mm. The New American Standard Version. Contemporary English. Contemporary English. NLT. NLT, New Living Translation. There's actually also the N L V, the New Living Version. Can easily be confused with the NLT. What else? Well we'll talk we'll throw it in the list, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So we have Eugene Peterson's The Message. The U version. The U version. I've heard oh that's is that like the online yeah. okay. it's every version. Oh. The what? It's got all the different versions. Oh, put it in there. Okay. Yeah. There's several websites like Bible Gateway and that that you can access all the different versions and whatnot. You got your Spanish version here tonight, but we're talking English translations. We've got a few Spanish Bibles up here. This is like the Spanish crew here. So lots and lots of different, uh, what's that one there, New Living Translation? Yeah, so lots and lots of different versions of the Bible. Does anyone have the new King James with them tonight? No? No new King Jamesers? Okay. So um, here, here are some, so we talked about the, uh, here are some that are mentioned. We talked about the, the American Standard Version, also known as the NASBY, 1901 is when it was translated. I'm going to give you these more or less in, in order. The Revised Standard Version, also known as the RSV, 1946 to 1952. The Moffat Bible, probably never heard of that one, but 1913 to 1924. The Smith-Goodspeed Bible, 1923 uh, to 1927. The New Berkeley Version, 1945. The Knox Bible, 1944 to 1949. The Jerusalem Bible, you probably heard of that one, right? That in yeah. Uh, when I was in Catholic school, I think they gave us that one. That's 1966. The Good News Bible, 66 to 76. The New English Bible, 1970. The New American Bible, 1970. Uh, the Good News Bible, today's English version. And then there's the New International Version, known as the NIV, very famous, 1978. New King James Version, 1982, New Century Version, 1987, Contemporary English Version, uh, 1991, and then English Standard, uh, 2001, and then updated in 2007. So, how do you evaluate English Bible versions? Well, what it starts with is an understanding of translation philosophy, and there are three basic philosophies that are used in translation uh, processes. Now, this doesn't just apply to the Bible. This applies to translating anything from one language to another. And I'll I'll describe these three translation philosophies to you, and then we'll we'll take some of the more popular Bibles we work with and and plug them in under these translation philosophies. The, um, The first one used to be called the wooden wooden literal. Now, it sounds kind of strict. So most people prefer to call this essentially literal. And the other reason that we would call it essentially literal is because nothing is really wooden literal in its translation. It's impossible to translate pretty much any language that I know of into another language, word for word. Grammar changes, nuances change. It's just, it's just not possible. So if someone says to you, I prefer this version of Bible because it's absolutely literal, it's not possible. You've got to play around with words a little bit. If for no other reason, then sentence structure in uh, Greek and Hebrew is not the same as it is in English. So a simple English sentence is subject, verb, object, Correct? And then you throw in a bunch of other little things, modifiers, you can throw in articles, adverbs, adjectives, and so forth. But subject, Aaron, through, ball. Throw in a the, throw in fast, whatever. But Aaron, through, ball. Subject, verb, object. And you identify the subject because it always comes before the verb. But in Greek, it can go anywhere in the sentence. The way you identify a subject, is based upon the ending that's tacked onto it. So you, you you take the stem of a word and you keep swapping out the ending if you want it to be an object, indirect object, modifier, subject, yada, yada, yada. So th- it's impossible to translate uh, with absolute uh, literalness from one language into the next. Uh, nevertheless the um, wooden literal philosophy does its best to try to stay as close to the structure and language of the original manuscript as possible. So what the translator tries to do is, for instance, with biblical studies, to translate from Hebrew or Greek into English word for word. That's what he tries to do. And it's called literal or wooden because it involves very little flexibility um, and, of course, is applied to varying degrees even under the versions that fall into this category. Now, such an approach to the Bible in terms of translation is attractive to people because the way you market a wooden literal translation is you say, you know, "This this is basically as close to the Greek or Hebrew as you can get. And if you appreciate inerrancy, you're like, that's for me. So uh, this is why wood and literal translations are very po- popular among evangelicals. But there are strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the approach, in some ways, allows the reader to um, make the interpretive decisions for themselves. Even if a sentence is a little confusing me because it's closer to word for word, it, it It puts the responsibility upon you, as the reader, to make the decision. Well, what does this really mean? The problem is is that most people with PhDs in linguistics are better at making those decisions than we are. Um, So for those unfamiliar with the original languages, uh, subtle grammatical nuances may be easier to detect in wooden translations. And, of course, it takes away from the translator the task of making interpretive decisions for you. But there's drawbacks. Here are some of them. First, the philosophy can wrongly assume that by getting the words in English close to the words in Greek, let's say, that you're getting the meaning of the Greek over into English accurately. Many people would argue that, in fact, rearranging the words... Will allow a person to communicate the meaning that was intended by the Greek writer to a greater degree in English. Um, the other point is that sometimes when you're reading, especially really wooden literal translations like the King James Version, there's certain parts that are sort of almost unintelligible. I mean you gotta read them and read them and read them, and read them again and read them again and read them again and read them again. And and unless you're sort of in a culture where you regularly hear that version read from by someone who knows it with the right emphasis on this word and so forth, it can kind of it can kind of be overwhelming. And so many of you who perhaps went to church as children in a church that read from the very wooden literal translations might recall times when you 're like, I-, "I swear they're speaking French. I, I have no idea what 's being said here, except for Nancy. She would have understood, of course, um, so the second problem is again, it sounds nice to say, well we 'll leave the interpretive decisions to you, but it 's not realistic for most people to to make those decisions. in fact, it can communicate it can contribute to greater error. So in some ways, one could argue that it's better for a group of informed translators to make an informed decision on how to translate an obscure grammatical construction than it is to leave it in the hands of someone who has no understanding of Greek or Hebrew, or maybe even kind of a weak grasp of English grammar. Third, um, the, if you think think about this, at first glance, when you think of translating, you tend to think word for word. But if you step back and think about language for a moment, really the power is in what? The meaning and the context. And to take a cluster of words over here and say, well, what we're trying to do is to take those, word, those clusters of words and translate them into English as accurately as possible. Again, the question is, is that what we should be doing? Or should we be more concerned about the meaning, the intention, the context of the original and trying to communicate those into the receptor language? And the answer to that question varies depending on the genre you're in too, right? So if it's a legal text, you sort of assume maybe more word for word. But if it's poetry, there's a lot of work to be done going from ancient poetry to modern English when you're By virtue of making the translation, you're automatically losing the rhyme, the sounds, the images may not compute for you, and so forth. So translation involves more than translating words, but phrases, sentences, paragraphs. And although a single word does communicate a measure of meaning, that's true, the word cat, for instance, communicates a measure of meaning, its context fleshes it out. The feline's tail, uh, a bulrush. The word "cat" can be connected to a lot of other words that change its meaning. It can refer to a, it can be attached to the word "tail" in reference to a bulrush, a whip. It could be attached to a earth-moving equipment. You know, "cat" earth-moving equipment. So words communicate meanings, but when they're put together, they communicate greater meaning. And so this is why many translators prefer this style of translation, which is called the dynamic equivalent. So under this, to varying degrees, under this first category would be King James Version, E, S, -S V, Nasby. Those would be some famous ones. Obviously the New King James as well. These tend to be more essentially literal. To one degree or 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 the other, dynamic equivalent. Most famous one would be uh, NIV, which would be more on the conservative side. Over here would be NLT. Okay, um, CEV would probably be about here. But these fall under the dynamic equivalent. So the dynamic equivalent, for for simplicity's sake, the translator would be working more with um, with paragraphs or sentences as a whole reading the whole sentence or whole paragraph and, and thinking to him or herself okay how do i how do i best in english communicate the essence of this sentence or paragraph in in english now in order to do that you automatically move away from word for word right and you're communicating larger chunks of the original text um now there's positives and neg- negatives to this as well. On the positive side, this approach recognizes that all translations do require a degree of interpretation because of each language's unique word order and grammatical nuances. And these folks too are they sort of live in our world. They recognize the limitations of the reader, the common reader, so they try to do some of the work for you. Uh, this approach does encourage reading and comprehension. So their emphasis is on kind of like modern pedagogy, right? Teaching theory. It's not so much what I say, the content I communicate. My job is to make sure you learn. So they're, they're reader-driven to a greater degree than this group. This is more text-driven. They're thinking about the reader. How do I communicate the, the intention in a way that maximizes the results? Now, um, what they do at times is unhelpful. So I'll give you an example of this. Let's say you're reading through Romans 8. And the same word in Greek appears 15 times. Well, uh, if you see that word in a wooden literal translation 15 times, let's say it's it's the word uh, righteousness. And you're studying Romans 8, and it says righteousness, 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 right, 15 times in the text. Well, when a, when an idea or word is repeated, that's going to say something to you as a student of the Bible. This is obviously a major theme. I need to study this word out. I need to make sure I understand what it means. And it's, 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 it jumps out at you more because it's righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. But for the sake of being creative and reader-driven, sometimes dynamic equivalent translators say, well, yeah, it says righteousness uh, 15 times, but we're going we're to pick three or four different English synonyms and sort of mix them up in the text. So we're going to go righteousness here, then we're going to go to goodness, and then we're going to maybe translate it as holiness here, and then back to righteousness and goodness and holiness. And you can see what they're doing. They're, they're trying to employ a broader number of English words to communicate the reading, the, the, the message. They're trying to make the text maybe a little less drab, but they do you a disservice because your eye is less likely to see three different synonyms and make the connection, all oh, these are all referring to the same thing, than if you see righteousness, 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 righteousness throughout the text. So there's, there's things like that in dynamic equivalent that, that are a little bit troublesome. Now, the other thing that I find troublesome is they, these, more of the the left-wing dynamic equivalents tend to be gender-inclusive. So they would take words like he, which may indeed refer to all of us, and make the decision for you that it should be translated as they or it, if it was in some other reference. Um, they may even delete male references to God and uh, you know, use gender-neutral language. And th- their, their thinking is, well, that's, that's how our culture works. That's the reality of the English world. We, we're sort of shying away from he's and she's and using a little bit more inclusive language. I know this to be true because when I studied at um, Wilfrid Laurier, that was the last seminar I was at, I was not allowed in my thesis to ever refer to God as he. I had to always just say God. And I wasn't used to writing that way. But that was the requirement of the university. You had to use gender-inclusive language. So dynamic equivalent translators, and recognizing that make those decisions for you. And most of the time, it's a non-issue because oftentimes the he just means everybody. But there's times when they make an interpretive decision for you that you should be able to ultimately make in good conscience for yourself. So those are some ups and downs of dynamic equivalent. Now, then someone asked about the message. So the third style, quote-unquote, of translation, I put it in quotes, is called a paraphrase. Now, technically... A paraphrase is not a translation at all. But for lack of a better word, we're going to put it under this. And a paraphrase is idea for idea. So if you've read the ESV or even an NIV, and then you've read Eugene Peterson's The Message, you you know what I'm talking about here. We don't don't need to explain it that much. It's clearly the general idea. He extracts it from the text stretches it, massages it, throws in a lot of colorful words, and tries to get the, the general ethos of the text across to you. And these are primarily de- de- uh, designed for devotional reading, or public readings, or even for younger children. So we have the, the Message, the Living Bible, which is obviously less of a paraphrase than the Message, J.B. Phillips' New Testaments, these are all examples of paraphrases. They're not true translations, but their desire is to take the intent of the passage, the general idea of the passage, and communicate it to the reader. So they would obviously be atrocious to use for deep Bible study. Uh, You certainly would never want to argue a phrase or a word Uh, with a friend out of a paraphrase, but if you want to sort of approach the text with fresh eyes and almost read, you could say, a sermon about the text, it's a little bit more like that. It's wrought with danger. Um, The final product, if it's read as a Bible, well, it's really not. It's more of a commentary on the Bible. And uh, again, useful in certain purposes, but we have to be very careful in thinking of it as a true Bible. It's really not a true Bible. So the message is not really the Bible, it's more of a creative commentary of sorts on the Bible. Okay? So, any questions then? We're not going to go too much further with this. Any questions about translations? uh, Mm hmm. Great guy, by the way. He's an excellent scholar, great pastor. But go ahead. Good. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I wouldn't even think that would be his original intention. But sometimes people, they don't think about these issues, translation theory, and it's like, well, this is just a new translation. Let's use it. And then you're arguing with someone or making a strong point in a Sunday school lesson or something based upon a word, assuming that that's a translation, it's not. See? Any more comments or questions about translation philosophy or versions? Jack? Right. Sorry, are you asking me why are they King James only? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would argue from my perspective, it's largely based upon sentiment and tradition. But they create academic arguments. So they would say that the, 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 the set of biblical manuscripts that were in those 54 scholars' possession, which are collectively known as the Texas Receptus, are superior to the Alexandrian school, the Western school, and all the hundreds more, thousands more of manuscripts we've uncovered since then, which we have in our possession today. And um, you, know, you can go back and forth, back and forth, but a, a true textual scholar, you, you, there's absolutely no way you could argue that with a straight face. It's just simply not true. You can't take a Hebrew Bible translated or not translated but a, a copy of the hebrew bible from 1000 AD which was the the earliest hebrew bibles that king james would have had in his possession at the time so only 400 years old and say that is superior than the ones we have now which you know predate jesus christ by several centuries it's, it's pretty hard to argue that so it's not that the text receptus is like major issues in it or errors but it's just not as it's not as clean and as archeologically sound as the many many more manuscripts that God has blessed us with having in our generation. We have a lot. Some 6 to 7,000 on the New Testament alone, fragments or larger sections. Someone over here, Lauren? Oh yeah. Now it's only, yeah. What, 40 years old, yeah. And yeah. Already they're using we don't use anymore. Yeah. Well, you know that's that's an interesting point because I don't think we should get hung up on on a particular version and say, you know, this is the only version for everybody for all of time. I when we started this church, I preached from the CEV, then I went to the NLT, and then I went to the ESV. I was sort of testing the waters, seeing seeing what I felt comfortable with and others. And before that, I I was at a church prior to that that required the new King James. Before that, NIV. I've only preached one sermon in my life from the King James. I'll tell you about that one. Um, I was a guest preacher. I was about like 20 or 21 years old. And I was asked to preach at a church in Gladstone, Ontario. Like Gladstone's one of those towns, if you you sneeze as you're driving through it, you'll miss it. Tiny little church, I was asked to preach, and they said to me, it has to be King James. Um, so, fine, I went and preached, but I, when I do guest preaching, they don't get an original sermon from me. So I took one of the sermons I preached at the church I was at, which was in the NIV, and I preached it out of the King James. But I made the mistake of not practicing reading it out loud in advance. <laughs> I, like, butchered it. <laughs> so, and It was very clear I was no longer used to the King James, even though when I was a kid, that's all we used. I thought Jesus, uh, you know, King James were friends or something. I just thought about it. Now, for practical purposes, here what I would here's what I would recommend for us English speakers: you should own one of each. So you should have in your possession a good, solid, wooden, literal, or essentially literal translation. You should have a dynamic equivalent. You know, pick your pick the one of your choosing, and you should have a paraphrase. And when you study the Bible. Um, you know, not knowing Greek and Hebrew, read the texts. And what this will do, we call this in um, in hermeneutics, uh, raising the disputables or raising the issues. If you're going to be a good student of the Bible, you first of all have to identify in the text, well, what are the debatable points? Or what are the points of interest? Or what are the things I should be thinking about? Um, so you, you read all three. And then you uh, this will become clearer as we move through the Bible study step ladder, but you start to identify the key issues in the text that you need to study. And then you go to the tools that you need, which we will discuss later in the course, to sort through the particular issues that you've identified. So I'm a, I'm a big advocate in having them all. I regularly read from the, the NIV and the ESV. Regularly. Um, it's not that common that I'm into the NLT or CEV anymore and not so much into a paraphrase. But definitely the first category and the second category, I'm kind of back and forth between them. And in terms of these three, they're all good. It's just that, as Lauren mentioned, uh, you know, this is several hundred years old in terms of its English. This is over 100 years old, and this is you know more or less recent. So they're kind of in the same school in terms of the degree to which they're literal, but it's just different generations. And then same with these, but the NLT would be great if they didn't go into the gender-neutral stuff. That concerns me. So um, a few basic premises that we bring to our study of the Bible are the following. So these are, these are. I could argue for these, but these are assumptions that I bring to the biblical text when I'm studying as a Christian and as a pastor. And I would like for you to have these assumptions too, but even if you don't have these assumptions, you should be aware of what your alternative assumptions are. And here they are then. I'll well, maybe just spin this around, I think I can. The Bible is make you do some guessing work. Inspired. What are the the three or four big I words that we attach to biblical study? It's inspired. It is inerrant and it is infallible. Inspired, inerrant, infallible. What do we mean by inspired? Someone give me a definition of inspiration. We're taking our cue from 2 Timothy 3.16. It's God-breathed, exactly. More specifically, every single word written in the original document was precisely what God wanted it to be, 2 Peter 1.21. So when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the Bible being God-breathed. And as evangelicals, we believe this. In fact, you can't be an evangelical and deny this. Okay? You can be a Christian, but you can't call yourself an evangelical. Now, one of the questions that's asked is, how could the Bible possibly be breathed by God when Luke writes differently than John? And John's writing style is a little different than Mark's. We're just talking Gospels now. Or going to the Epistles, Peter does not write the same as Paul's. So there, there seems to be like a human element in the text. So um, not only that, but there, there are different, I, I use this word carefully because I remember 20 years ago in Bible college I asked my professor a question on the spot and I said, because um, I never thought about it before, are there grammatical errors in the Bible? So if if you're reading John's work, like is John's grammar as good as Matthew's? And he said, yeah, actually, in a sense, yeah, there are. Like Luke is a Luke Luke's Greek is better Greek. Whoever wrote Hebrews, awesome Greek. So there's different levels and qualities you could say of Greek in the text. So clearly we have the human element in there. We're not ta- errors. I'm not talking about. Um, uh, you know, errors of content or the wrong words, I'm talking about, in a sense, uh, there's more sloppy Greek and there's more polished Greek in the Bible. And perhaps, I never asked the question, but perhaps the same could be uh, said of the, the the Hebrew. So how do we deal with this? Well, we need to make a distinction between uh, dictation, this, this idea that inspiration means dictation. Inspiration... Does not equal dictation. Inspiration does not equal dictation. It's not like, you know, here's Matthew and I'm the Spirit and I'm like whispering into his ear and he's recording the words. Rather, our uh, view of inspiration is that the writer is fully engaged, his mind is turned on, he's thinking about his audience, he's processing his understanding of Scripture. And God is overseeing the process to ensure that everything that winds up on the page is what God wants without violating personality, writing style, you know, taking him from grade 8 to grade 12 Greek, you know, honoring his academic background to make sure that the book is, you know, very much a product of the author, but also uh, a reflection of what God wants, word for word. Um,. In addition, one must note that, in actual fact, best as we can tell, most of the, the the writers of, let's say, the Greek Bible, employed scribes to actually do the writing for them. Now, you could won't look these up for the sake of time. You can look them up yourself. But Paul evidently employed a scribe by the name of Tertius in Romans sixteen twenty two to write down what Paul dictated to him. It's in the text. So if you're going to talk about dictation, it is the the writer dictating to his amanuensis, or scribe, what he wants. It's not like a dictation thing from the Spirit. Whereas in Galatians, Paul chose to pen the letter himself, Galatians 6.11. So in doing so, we see minor variations in grammar, even between the same book, by the same author. The second stake we drive into the ground is inerrant. Now, this isn't necessarily a great word because it's by nature like negative, but it means without error. So it means without error. It is inerrant. Again, normally those who accept the orthodox definition of inspiration also accept inerrancy. Now this it, this is a historic doctrine that flows logically from inspiration. The Bible doesn't spend a great deal of time trying to prove its own inerrancy. It assumes it based upon the fact that its author is ultimately God. But we can art, uh, uh, logically say, well, because it's inspired, then it should be inerrant. And traditionally, we evangelicals have argued that every word in the Bible must be completely true. The Bible's error-free. Now, when we say it's error-free, here's an interesting question. Does the Bible have lies in it? Yes, it does. Several lies. Satan lies, and his words are recorded in the text. But here's the difference. There's a difference between recording lies and recording untruths as lies and untruths and claiming, error, claiming truth statements that are, in fact, lies. So all the words that Satan whispered to Jesus in his temptation were lies, and they're recorded for us in the Bible. But they're, truth. they're truthfully recorded as lies. Now, you might say, well, isn't that obvious? Yeah, it is, but this is where the open the Bible, pick a verse, grab it, and swallow it method needs to be avoided. Because you may happen to be opening it and picking out a lie and believing it to be true. So you got to read the context. The most dangerous place for this is in the book of Job. Okay, Job, chapters 1 to 3, his suffering and his demise. And then you got chapter after chapter after chapter of Job's dialogue with his three buddies who are trying to argue for why he's suffering and i've heard people open i've been into people's houses before where they've had quotes from job on posters on their wall and that's a lie they think it's true but it's a lie now it's not a lie as in like a blatant untruth but it's not a full truth it's a philosophical statement from one of job's friends as they try to figure out why he's suffering but in the context, it's not true. We know it's not true because when Elihu speaks, God comes in and corrects everybody and says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. So the bulk of Job is you don't know what you're talking about. But if you're just looking for a good devo one night for your life group, and you do the point and flip method, you just drop your Bible open. Job's not too far off center. And you're at like Job 20, and you just pull out a chunk and teach at your life group. You might be teaching in, teaching error because that's what it is. It's an erroneous philosophy of why God allows suffering. So we need to be careful when we talk about inerrancy that we don't assume that means the Bible only records truth. It also records uh, error. Genesis 3 is another classic example where the serpent utters lies about God to try to convince Adam and Eve to sin. So God inspires the actual words, and then he ensures... That the words recorded in the Bible are originally written. That does not mean there are not errors in the translation. Okay, but uh, fortunately, the, the the major translations we have today pretty accurately reflect the the intentions and words of the writer. Another thing that we uh, believe in is not the law of non-contradiction. Being confused about what you're reading is a different idea than trying to find contradictions in the Bible. I've had plenty of conversations and debates with atheists and people of other world religions in my life and they always try to find errors and contradictions in the Bible. And they're always, always apparent contradictions or an absolute naive and ignorant reading of the text. And this is why it's important for us to study the Bible as a whole. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong pursuit. But as you read the Bible over and over again, study this, and then go back and study this, and study this passage, and study over here, and study over here, you'll, you see how it, it, it flows. And it doesn't contradict. There's different nuances, different angles, different literary styles that are employed to communicate a message. But nothing that is said in one part of the Bible that is true is contrary to what is said in any other part of the Bible. So without a lengthy discussion of the various attacks that have been made against scripture uh, over the centuries, uh, we certainly need to recognize that there's a difference between an apparent contradiction and a real or actual contradiction. So as evangelicals, and again, the purpose of this course is not to defend all these positions, take my apologetics course for that but we're just making we're just laying out our assumptions on the table we rightly assume that those who have found alleged errors in the bible have only pointed out an apparent error but real and actual are different words so the bible by nature is a book void of contradictory statements or doctrines fourth idea it's harmonious Not everything in the Bible is a harmonious account. But we have 40 writers, roughly, writing 66 books over a period of more than 1,000 years. And yet the Bible is the very Word of God. The same in Spirit inspires all writers. And so there's, there's a sense of harmony to the Bible. Um, now, what we want to f- be familiar with in, for, for our purposes is what's called the analogy of scripture. Is this familiar language to anybody? What does it mean? What's the analogy of scripture? It's it's an interpretive principle. What does it mean? Anybody want to take a stab at it? I thought I heard someone say yes. Who said yes? Take a guess. Just get us started here. Who wants to take a guess? The analogy of scripture. Okay, you're analyzing it, good. So let's say that you are in uh, a text of the Bible that has some something in it that's confusing you, and you've read around it. Maybe you've read the whole book. Let's say it's in John. But you just can't figure it out. What do you do? You employ the principle of the analogy of Scripture. You go outside of that book, and you look for perhaps a similar event, some background story to what's being talked about, some other principle, some other idea. And you this is not eisegesis, but you're now taking the Scripture as a whole and reading it more broadly, comparing, contrasting, moving back into the text and looking for greater clarity. So you'll notice this if I'm preaching. I might be preaching from a text, and I take you outside of that passage to another verse to maybe shed light on it. Really what I'm doing is the analogy of Scripture. Now, I'm doing that because I believe in the harmony of the Bible. If I don't believe in the harmony of the Bible, I should never do that. But the harmony of the Bible allows me to compare and contrast all the texts of the Bible to bring greater clarity to the one at my disposal. Okay, when we move through the Bible study step, step ladder that I'm going to talk about this more extensively, but I'll, I'll summarize it right now. The first thing you do is you, you identify the nature of the difficulty. Is it about the meaning of a word? Is it about the meaning of a phrase? Is it about a, a geographical reference that's confusing you? Is it about a cultural or customary issue that's confusing you? Is it a doctrinal issue that's confusing you? And so forth. You try to identify, categorize the nature of the issue. And then uh, we teach a process whereby, let's say, it's a geographical issue. Uh, It's confusing you. They're going up, they're going down. They're going up, they're going down. Well, then you step out of the Bible in that case into, like, let's say, a, a geography textbook and you familiarize yourself with the geography of the land. Then you can jump back in. Or you can go to other passages of the Bible using a concordance that maybe uses the same place, name, or reference to the same location. You study out those contexts, and that'll shed more light on this geographical issue. If it's a doctrinal issue, then you get out your concordance or utilize your understanding of the rest of Scripture, and you look up other passages of the Bible that are talking about that same doctrine. You read them, you study them. And then when you come back to the text, that gives you greater clarity. Or if it's a customary issue, you may, you may need to look at the the history of that custom as it appears in the Bible, or you may need to step outside of the Bible and look at extra biblical material that will help you to understand the custom and then come back into the text. So it's it's it starts with identifying the issue. So for instance, if I was writing um, a like a really detailed exegetical paper on Ephesians six, you know the, uh, the the armor of God. There's a lot of imagery in there, right? Helmets and swords and spirits, and and then there's phraseology like um, you know, the heavenly realms. What does that mean? So as I'm working through that text, if I want to be really detailed, I'd go through it verse by verse. I'd read my different translations. I'd try to raise out the key issues, make a list of them, 10, 20 different issues that I want to study out. And then I categorize them. Okay, Heavenly realms, what is that? That's a phrase. So I'm going to do a phrase study. Um, Breastplate of righteousness. I could be focusing on the whole phrase, breastplate of righteousness. I could be focusing on breastplate. I could be focusing on of. There's 30 different ways of using of in the Bible. Or righteousness. So I categorize the issue. And then I start to thumb through the Bible to find similar passages that will help me to understand each of these phrases or each of these ideas. And I, be, I begin a process of validating or invalidating my conclusions. So the first thing I do is, how many different interpretations are on this? Maybe in my reading I discover there's three. And then I start to think, okay, what seems to fit this context the best? So I reread the passage. Reread the passage. I, I, you know, go back to sister passages. I, I look up other places in the Bible where breastplate or righteousness are used, and I begin to draw my conclusions. So that's just real quick, but we're going to um, expand on that progressively. Okay. The fifth, the fifth thing that we keep in mind when we're reading the Bible is that the Bible is a book of uh, progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Anybody want to take a stab at what this means? Lauren? We We didn't get it all in Genesis. So stop telling your friends... I'm going to step on some toes here. That in the Genesis record when it says, let us make man in our image, that that is proof of the Trinity. Please stop it. Because there's no way in God's green earth that for the first couple of thousands of years that that was being read, or a couple of hundreds of years that anybody saw the Trinity there. Because they didn't have the incarnation yet. They didn't have the New Testament. The us is a plural of majesty in grammar. It means that God is elevated. In Old English, a bishop or a king or queen can refer to themselves as us. That's all it means. Now, you now can read New Testament theology back into it and say, well, it's not contradictory to the Trinity. But Old Testament believers were not Trinitarians. They didn't know about the Trinity yet. They didn't have that revelation yet. They didn't know about the rapture, they didn't know about the millennium, they didn't know Jesus' name, they knew there was going to be a Messiah, they didn't know when he was going to come. They didn't know any of that. So when you read the Bible, you have to ask yourself the question, where am I at in the Bible? And when that book was originally received, what did the people know and how would they have read it at that time? But we often read the Bible flat. We think it's all written in the same day. So because we know so much, because we have a completed Bible now for 2,000 years, we read, read things back into the text that the original readers never saw, never understood, and weren't intended to get. Now that's different than looking at a prophecy in the Old Testament and seeing the fulfillment of it in the New, and then saying, oh, that's what he was referring to. But we can't read the Bible flat. We need to keep in mind the Bible is a book where God progressively reveals himself to humanity over several centuries. So when I am studying, for instance, the book of Joshua, my first responsibility, as best as I'm able, is to ask myself this simple question. How do the original recipients understand the book of Joshua? And if I've got that done, I've got 95% of my job done. Not, how does a guy with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and so forth and so on, read it. I got way more revelation. What were they thinking? What was on their minds at the time? And you go through the Bible. This is why, you know what, we taught the history class too. Because it's helpful as you're reading through the Old Testament to realize it wasn't all written in a day. It records a lot of time. What were they thinking? What did they know at the time of Micah that they didn't know at the time of the judges? So as we read through the Bible, you're in the book, you're thinking, what did, what did the original recipient mean? And one of the principles we, we often repeat over and over again in biblical studies is the text cannot mean to you what it never meant to the original recipient. With this exception, progressive revelation, that's color, obviously prophecy is interpreted, for us or fulfilled. There's nuances you can see in the text through the lens of greater revelation. But you can't you can't read the Bible flat as if we all got it in one day. And again, this requires a a, a change of, of mindset. Um, I don't like to belittle people when I see them doing this, but it happens far, far, far too often for my liking. Uh, just a couple other quick points. It's final revelation. Uh, that means that um, with the death of the apostles, that the canon was closed. And as we talked about last week, I guess in theory, if we found, we'll call it Third Corinthians, we could include it. But the problem with that is, why would God not have preserved it for the last two thousand years? So theoretically, the canon's open. Practically, it's closed. It's our final authority. it Doesn't mean there's no authority outside of the Bible. Um, there is authority outside of the Bible. Some of them wear badges and have guns, and if they pull you over and say stop speeding, they're your authority. But final authority for matters of truth and practice, Christian life rests in the Bible. And then the Bible is contextualized. Biblical interpreters must study a text in keeping with the rules and regulations that govern the following things. Literature. Culture. That means, like it or lump it, you've got to become a student of grammar. Grammar terminology, expressions of speech, cultural practices. These things also change over time. So here is, if you remember, nothing else, nothing else in our six weeks together. Okay? you got to remember this phrase. Context is always the king. It is a basic assumption that we bring to the text. You got to read the context. Some people like to just state it this way: the top three rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, context. Those are the top three. Okay, read the context. Read the context. Context is king. So what I'd like to do now is uh, we'll take a bit of a break, and then we're going to move into what I what I call the Bible study step ladder. You know, it's not like maybe the best analogy, but um, you, you know, when you, when you climb up a ladder, you go rung by rung. You just jump up ten rungs. You go rung by rung. There's a, there's a sequence of steps you follow. And the way I'm going to introduce this to you is on a macro level, there's certain steps you have to take. And then macro is like working your way up to, let's say, a particular cluster of verses. And then on a micro level, there's all sorts of little steps you also take when you're actually in the passage that's under... Under your microscope. So this is called the Bible study step ladder, and you got to be familiar with all of these steps, okay? And move through them sequentially if you're going to do justice to the biblical, uh, to God's, to God's revelation for us through the Bible, okay? will just take a few minutes. There's some snacks back there. When the lights get flicked, that means we got to come back together. Okay, guys, let's uh, let's come back together. So in your Course notes were under uh, the, the title "Where to Begin: Bible Study Step Ladder." Contextual Bible study. This is a process um, and macro issues. So these are like big picture issues. So what I'm assuming is that you're not trying to study your whole Bible at once, but you're 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 picking a chapter or a cluster of verses you're going to preach from it, you're going to teach from it, you're doing your devotional reading in it. So what do I need to do leading up to that process? Now, I understand as I'm going through this tonight, I'm not not literally suggesting that every time you open your Bible and read 10 verses, you spend three and a half hours leading up to it. But what you will find is that if you do your work well on the macro, it will be done for you every time you open up the Bible in the future. So if you get these macro concepts down in your head once, And you start to think this way. A lot of this is about the way we approach text. If you learn to think this way, then it's going to start to come natural to you. So as a Bible scholar, I don't go through all these steps every time I study the Bible because I've gone through them so many times, they're secondhand to me. And that's what you need to work towards. Certain things, you just know it. You just know it cold. And what we're going to start with is your assumptions. The assumptions that we listed here, you should know... What they are, and you should know that you know what they are. You should be conscious of the fact that you believe the Bible is inspired, that it's a harmonious whole, that it's infallible, that it's inerrant, that the Bible is God's progressive revelation. You need to know this stuff. You don't know what your assumptions are, you're gonna be all over the map and inconsistent in your study. So know what your assumptions are as you're coming into the text. The second thing that you do then is the Bible is more or less split into two parts, correct? We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. You always have to be conscious of what testament you're in. Now, why is this important? What? How do you approach the Old Testament vis-a-vis the New Testament? We'll just talk among ourselves here. What, what are some differences that you intuitively are aware of between the old and the new? Law versus grace. Okay, law versus grace. We need to be a little bit careful about that because while the Old Testament communicates lots of law, we don't want to buy into the old school thinking that God was a God of law and then he became a God of grace. God's always been a God of grace, correct? But there's an emphasis on the law as our school teacher, Galatians tells us this, bringing us to Christ, making us aware of how woefully inadequate we are, and the need to increasingly stake our lives upon God's grace. So good. What else? The big one. Jesus hadn't come yet, right? So the New Testament is always read Christologically. It's read through the lens of the birth, the life, the teachings, The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. I've had some Lutherans that have challenged me on this, and I appreciate it. They said, you you can never preach the Bible without mentioning Christ. Now, that's a bit of an overstatement. But the point is, is the Bible centers on Christ. He's the the, the climax of God's redemptive plan. He's not just like a a little addition, a little one-up. It's all about Christ. So even as you're reading the Old Testament, especially the uh, Christological prophecies, As a New Testament believer, you're reading them with greater enlightenment because you're familiar with the New Testament. But you also got to remember these people hadn't yet encountered him yet. So what were they thinking? What were they aware of? What were they looking forward to? So as you're preaching the Christ passages of the Old Testament, what we now know are Christ passages, you got to preach themes of hope and looking forward and so forth because that's what they were thinking. They were still waiting for, still looking forward to the coming of Christ. What else? What are some other assumptions? Two different languages, which means two different cultures. Greek is, the New Testament is much more cosmopolitan. It's the the language of the people as a whole, the Roman Empire. It's a letter to people over in Rome, people up in Galatia, people over in Palestine. It's cosmopolitan in its flavor. That means you're going to have far more cultural issues in the New Testament than the Old Because the Old Testament is one small ethnic group, very ethnocentric, one culture, one people. It's it's much more localized in its teachings. And a lot of people don't think about that. Um, It's like there's a difference between Essex and Toronto. One's cosmopolitan, one's more local. The Old Testament is... Uh, has as much cultural diversity as you might find in Essex. The New Testament has the cultural diversity of Toronto. So what's going on in Corinth isn't necessarily going on in Rome and Galatia and down in Palestine and so forth and so on. What else? What are some other things that you bring to the different Testaments when you're reading them? Okay, good. A lot of history... Part of that is because it's written over such a lengthy period of time and is recording such a breadth of human history. So when you're reading the Old Testament, I know some of you are like, oh, I don't want to learn more stuff, but you have to know that there's different periods of time. When you're reading a book, you need to get to a point where you know this book was written before, this section was written before Abraham. This was after Abraham. This was during the, uh, the captivity or this is during the period of the judges, or this is during the United Monarchy, or this is the divided monarchy, or this is an exilic book. Sorry, you got to learn it. Because if you don't know the time period that the book A was written in, and B was recording, you're going to misread it, hands down. So you have to read the Old Testament with a high degree of historicity in mind. And it, it seems overwhelming at first, but if you just learn to read that way, it comes easy. Now, we have a huge benefit. They're called study Bibles. They do most of this work for you in like a half a page. So if you're reading in John for the first time, read the intro. It gives you most of this information. You don't have to buy another book on it. So it's there, but you need to be familiar with it because it's going to impact the way you read it. So several other considerations we could, we could mention, but those are some key ones. Um, this brings us to point three, the historical setting. So when you're reading, this might be of help to you. So here you are, and you're reading backwards, correct? You're reading history. Yes, it's the word of God, it's relevant, it's meaningful, but you're reading history, or something rooted in history. And let's just say this is your passage. So you're reading this passage. Now, You've got to ask a couple historical questions. I'm reading, let's say, this book written in uh, uh, 50 A.D. But is it possible that there's something in that book, written in 50 A.D., that is recording something from 950 B.C.? Well, if it's true, you sort of got to think backwards. Here's my world before I start making propositions for my listeners, my readers, telling them what I think this means, or telling myself what I'm supposed to do with this, what was going on at the time of the writer? Why did he write it? Why in 5080 did a guy waste his Saturday writing this book? What was his purpose? What did he have in mind? What were the circumstances surrounding the, 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 the circumstance of the writing that caused him to write it? And if in that book he's recording something earlier, what do I need to know about this period of time? So I'm obviously the most classic example of this. is Genesis was clearly written thousands of years after its events. At least parts of it. So what, uh, you know, what, what was going on in, let's say, the, the time of uh, Noah? What do I need to know about that historical setting? What was going on when Moses wrote it, probably in the 15th century? It's been in my hands now. What do I do with it today? So you've got to go back before you come forward. A lot of people don't like to read the history. They just jump into the Bible, pull out a verse, and say, Aha, this is what it says. And they don't do justice to the historical setting. So you've got to look at the historical setting of the book. This is what I'm saying. The historical setting of the book and the historical setting that the book is recording. Does that make sense to you? The historical setting of the writing of the book and the historical setting that it is recording. You got to think about both of these if there are two. It may all be one. Obviously in the New Testament it's going to be much close, but the Old Testament will be further apart. Fourth, culture. Now you have an advantage, you're a Canadian. We're big into culture and we understand culture maybe more than most other people groups have in history. We are in our educational system we're taught to think about culture cultural influences, cultural nuances. We are multicultural. We understand that you talk to someone from this cultural background vis-a-vis someone from this cultural background. We see uh, traits in people from certain cultural backgrounds. And by the way, ethnicity and culture are not the same. They're often used interchangeably. Um, You don't need to be multicultural to be multi-ethnic. Okay, God doesn't call you to honor everybody's cultures. Cultures are human constructs which have pluses and minuses. We, we don't hate people or despise people because the blood that flows through their veins, the color of their skin, the shape of their eye, the texture of their hair. That's But that's not the same as saying, oh I gotta champion everybody's culture. Because cultures are corrupt. My culture is corrupt, Some of the cultures my ancestors came from are corrupt. There's always corruption. So we don't need to... Multiculturalism and being uh, not a racist are not one and the same. But in the Bible, we have cultural settings. So do you think that Canada has changed over the last 40 years? A little bit? Do you think that culture 40 years ago was different than it was 100 years ago? Do you think that culture 100 years ago was different than it was... 300 years ago. And we could just keep going back. And you'd say, yep, 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 yep. Well, how many centuries are being recorded for us in the Bible? How many centuries? A lot. How many millennia? Uh, Millennia, folks. A lot. Do you think there was maybe some changes from the time of Abraham to the time of Malachi? Do you think David's culture was maybe a little bit different than uh, Joshua's? Do you think um, Samson's culture was a little bit different than John the Baptist's? Oh yeah. But what do we do? We read it flat. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years between some of these episodes that we quote in the same sermon. And oftentimes we misread the text because we we misread the culture so being a student of the culture so just broadly speaking what are some some foundational uh, cultural considerations we would want to take into consideration politics right that's a kind of a cultural nuance are these people living under a monarchy Um, are they living in sort of little mini tribes are they living again in a cosmopolitan setting are the um, recipients under someone else's culture? Like are they being influenced by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians? Um, so these are some, some considerations. Um, what were their marriage customs at the time? What were their travel customs? What was the, what was the military stability of the country like at the time? Your culture is going to be a little bit different if you're living under Solomon. Big K king, everything's secure, country's growing, roads are locked down, you can travel, there's freedom, there's peace, as opposed to post-exile. The Persians are ruling, the roads are uh, broken up, there's marauding bands up and down the roads... Somebody else is breathing down your neck, controlling you, using someone else's currency. These, are, these affect culture. So you don't need to know every aspect of ancient culture. How is that even possible? But you have to learn to start to think about culture and probe into the text to see how culture affected whatever it is that you're reading. Lauren, did you have a comment? I think I might have saw a hand coming up. Or uh, mm. what were you thinking about polygamy? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So how many of you heard someone say uh, either polygamy is condoned in the Bible or uh, you know the Bible's inconsistent because it has polygamy in it? Anybody? Name one passage in the Bible that condones polygamy. Name one where God's like. Go ahead and be a polygamist. It's a great idea. Now, study every passage that contains polygamy and ask yourself the question, how's that working for you? <laughs> in every situation, it's not explicit, but implicitly there's always a problem. Sister wives fighting, distractions, adultery tagged on. Well, they're living in a culture where polygamy was the thing to do. Now, why was it the thing to do, culturally? Why was it the thing to do? And don't just say because the guys like having sex with multiple women. Why was polygamy a part of ancient Near Eastern culture? Succession. Succession. Why is that important? Like We we like kids too, right? (laughs) Any difference in the ancient mindset about children compared to our generation? Pardon me? Okay, that's partly true. Labor. Military strength. Military strength. Exactly. The, the Old Testament is very, in a, say, in, in a sense, heaven is on earth. So what are the God's primary blessings? You need to know these. Cold. What are God's primary blessings that come up over and over and over again in the Old Testament? is it a new heaven and a new earth is it resurrection life no crops children peace and lots to eat and drink new wine oil grain and a long life now these that god was speaking into the lives of his people that was the revelation he gave them at the time there's 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 um, a heavenly dimension, but it's a little foggy. Okay, there's. I do not believe that any Old Testament believer had a developed view of heaven or hell. They had some sort of an understanding of the afterlife, but this is why when people study the word Sheol in the Old Testament, it sometimes confuses them. Because sometimes it's like, These, it seems like more the, the grave, because at times it's referring to the grave. Um, but as the Bible sort of, unfolds the word sheol starts to take on increasingly like a a heavenly a, a futuristic and eternal dimension even heaven i mean we have such a crystal clear understanding of the fact we are going to heaven someday that we read that back into the scripture and assume that when joel talks about his redeemer or job talks about his redeemer living that he understood everything that we know he didn't God had not fully revealed his plan and purposes. By the way, we're going to get to heaven and be surprised how little God has revealed to us. (laughs) You know, We're just looking through a glass dimly, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. Um, But culture. So marriage customs. Sometimes God accommodates the culture while not condoning it. You can't read the Bible and say everything in the Bible God is condoning. Sometimes he accommodates us in our foolishness, in light of our culture, For uh, a period of time, and then he's sort of like, you know what, you're big boys now, it's time for a new lesson. And then it's time for a new lesson. And then it's time for a new lesson. So you have to read the Bible progressively. You can't just plunk yourself down in Genesis and say, oh, everything that happened in Genesis, we should be doing in our church today. You should be polygamist. Uh, If your daughter-in-law dies, or if if your son dies... And your daughter-in-law is without child, it's your job to go in and impregnate her. No. This is the kinsman redeemer uh, expectation in the culture of the time. Several things like that in the Old Testament that are going on. So culture, very, very important cultural setting. Uh, I'll just we could we could talk ad infinitum about this. I'll give you another example. Um, David and Bathsheba. Okay. Uh, what was the guy doing up on his shingled roof? And what was she doing on the shingled roof next door? Bathing. Who does that? It just, if, you've, if you've only ever seen a peaked shingled roof, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And if you live in Windsor, which is very flat, really doesn't make sense. But you understand the culture. A, a roof is not the same as uh, a roof like us. It's, it's like another floor to the house. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, David's city, the city of David, is on a, a hill looking down on, like nowadays, several hundred homes. And it was ritual for the woman to bath on the roof. I've heard preachers say, oh, clearly she was sleazy. She was out there, you know. No, she's she's doing what she's supposed to do. She's not going to bath on the main floor. What if somebody walks in? She's up on the roof. She's bathing. She just got through her period, and she's bathing. That was the ritual. And the king's out. He's not supposed to be there. She probably didn't expect he was there because her own husband, who's a lieutenant, is off the war. And he's seeing her from the top. So you get a, you got to see the culture. you got to understand. No, that's also a geographical issue, culture and geography together to understand, like, what in the world is the woman doing on the roof? Uh, what are some other things that come to mind when we talk about the need for understanding culture? I want you to share with the class. Culture, why is it important? What are some examples? Traditions. What kind of traditions, uh, Michelle? Oh for example, in that time when you upon the or being with another guy then yeah. Yeah, okay. So there's, there's different cultural connotations of acceptable forms of punishment. And uh, this opens a whole interesting ethical discussion because a lot of Christians go back and forth. Well, are we supposed to follow the supposed ethics of the New Testament or the supposed ethics of the Old Testament when we're penalizing people? The Mennonites and Anabaptists say, we like the New the Baptists and Brethren—we kind of like the old. But in actual fact, it's not about new and old. There's a lot of cultural connotations to consider. There's a lot of contextual issues to consider. It's not as simple as, you know, a yes or a no at all points in, in time. So lots of things we we could talk about. Um, you know, Old Testament, you're in Leviticus. You ever wondered why you can't boil a, a a kid goat in its mother's milk? I don't know why you'd want to, but if you wanted to. <laughs> Why couldn't you? There's some cultural stuff there. Why is a woman eating dust off the ground to see if her abdomen swells in Leviticus, if she's committed adultery or not? A lot of cultural stuff going on there that you need to sort of delve into to understand. Sometimes we just don't have enough information to interpret them dogmatically, but other times you can find it, and it's very helpful. Fifth point, authorship. Who wrote the Bible? People say, well, God wrote the Bible. Okay, I get it. In a sense, he did, but who wrote the Bible in space and time, using writing instruments? Who wrote it? Human beings. beings. How many? We're not 100% sure, but probably around 40, because we have um, some books that don't identify the author, who wrote Chronicles, the Chronicler. That's what he's actually called in biblical studies. So we don't know who wrote every book. Um, perhaps ancient peoples did, and that just information has been passed on. Who knows? Uh, the Psalms, I mentioned on Sunday, several different writers. So why, why would an understanding, if you, if you can get to it, why would an understanding of who the author is help you in your study of the Bible? Okay, good. Jonah seems like a big meanie if you're a New Testament missionary. But you would be a very different person if you were raised in Jonah's day. Where the What's the mission model of the Old Testament? Come and see. What's the mission model of the New Testament? Go and tell. Well, if you've been living in a come and see environment for centuries, everyone else a bunch of scumbags... And your job is to maintain the holy presence of God's people on earth in this land. And then God comes and says, uh, hey, do you mind skedaddling up to Assyria to um, evangelize the Ninevites? You'd be resistant as well, maybe even more so than Jonah. But if you just think of Jonah, like if you just look at Jonah's life through your grid, where you've had it hammered into, you know, love the world, reach the world, share your faith, get out in the highways and byways of life. You just don't understand Jonah. It just doesn't make sense to you. But you know the old saying, walk a mile in a guy's shoes? Well, walk a mile in Jonah's shoes, and you understand to a great, it doesn't excuse it, but you understand his resistance. So Jonah is a great example. What are some other examples of um, why we would want to understand, if possible, as much as we can about the original author? Yeah, very good. Also, just understanding something like their occupation kind of helps you to understand why Luke is a superior writer of Greek. He's the physician. He's well-educated for his culture and time. By our standards, he's probably like a high school graduate. But for his point in time, he's a well-schooled person compared to his contemporary, so he's, he's just got more education. His, his Greek's better. Um, what are some other examples of how authorship? How about in our study of the Psalms? Authorship important? Why created me a clean heart, O God? Cast not your Holy Spirit from me. Who said that? Why did he say it? Because he had an adulterous affair. You know the guy, you know the circumstances. It's a whole lot more powerful and meaningful than if we don't know who wrote it. So, always identify if you can. There's certain books we can't, like Hebrews, but always identify the author and find out as much as you can about him. Now, they're all hymns, but um, that's not a slight against women, but they just happen to all be males because they were the people God selected to write. Kathy? Slightly related. Were the um, apostles and Jesus Sideric? Yes. Yeah, I think they all would have been. The the um, the Jewish, you know how there's like uh sort of some stereotypes today of Jews being very intellectual, uh, good in business. In actual fact, this is, it's not a, about the blood that flows through their veins. It's actually connected to history. Jewish people have perhaps been one of the most literate people through right back to the time of writing. It was always very much emphasized. Because they tied literacy to Revelation. So if you're going to be a holy Jew, you kind of need to learn to write. So they would school even the the lower classes in, in Hebrew. And depending on the lingua franca, if it was Aramaic at the time or later Greek, they would have been familiar with that as well. Yeah, Yeah. a good question though. Um, you know, Muslims claim that Muhammad wasn't literate and wrote. Um, that that would be a hard argument to press if Mus- if Muhammad was a Jew, because Jews generally were literate, highly literate. From the time of the development of literacy, obviously. Yeah. This is a little off topic, but is Quran, is it like is it supposedly written only by him? Yes. Dictated. Yeah, dictated to him. So they have a different view of inspiration. Their inspiration equals dictation. Yeah. Um, okay, location of the writing. This is the next thing you're thinking about. When it comes to location, think about, just like in this diagram, think about a, a few different things. We use the word location. What can this mean? Okay, where was the writer, that's a locational question. Where was uh, the reader, meaning the original reader? Where was the event or events? Right. So these are all locational questions, and they're not all the same. Or maybe the event, the reader and the writer are all in the same spot. But maybe they're not. Maybe it's a northern prophet writing to the southern tribes. Maybe it's a southern prophet writing to the northern tribes. Maybe it's a southern prophet writing to the, nor- to the southern pro- uh, tribes about the northern tribes. So you've you got to think location here. This is very important. So where was it written? As best as you can tell, where was it written? Where were the recipients or the recipient? Where were they located when they received it? And the events that are being recorded, where are these events? So this is important. And this is where you get to look at some maps. And again, read the intro to your study Bible. Audience, when we preach the Bible, when you hear me preach, normally, whether you're conscious of this or not, I will say, God says to us, God wrote to us. This is God's command to us. But what I'm actually doing is I'm taking an interpretive step, having studied the Bible and being confident that this is actually for us, I'm saying this is for us. But technically speaking, it's not our material. It was written to a specific person or tribe or group originally. So when we think audience, we need to think original audience. This is going to help us to understand the biblical text. Who were these people? What did they need to hear? What did they know or not know? What were their circumstances? Let me give you an example. Who, how would the audience differ between the book of Ezekiel and the book of Galatians? What are, the, what are some differences between those two audiences? So first we would ask ourselves, who, is the, who was the original recipient of Ezekiel. And who were they? Mm -hmm. Jewish people living in Babylon, correct, during the exile, so 6th century BC. Who were the recipients of uh, the the epistle to the Galatians? Mm -hmm. Galatians living where? Where's Galatia? In relationship to Jerusalem? In the country, outside of the country, outside of the country. A province. Okay, Ephesus is a city, Corinth is a city, Galatia is a province, so broader area. Okay, what are the similarities between the two audiences? They're both outside of the Holy Land. What are the differences? Okay, pre- and post-Christ, that's an important distinction. How about some like cultural, military, political differences? Okay, the, which group's captives? Okay, so the ones in Babylon are captives. The ones in Galatia, are they captives? No, they're just expats. They're, they're the diaspora. They're Jews living out their faith in Gentile territory. So there's some tie-ins between the Galatians and the people living in Babylon, and that they're both outside of the Holy Land. But there's drastic differences. Some of them are there by choice. Some of them are there because they got captured. What would be some different themes you would preach into these people's lives in light of that? Different themes. What would the Babylonian Jews need to hear as opposed to the Galatian Jews? Babylon, themes of hope, God hasn't forgotten you. In Galatia, don't integrate, don't assimilate, don't become like everyone else, don't forget the gospel that was entrusted to you. But then there would be some similarities, right? You're outside of, of the promised land, but you know, make sure you, broadly speaking, adhere to God's covenant, you're still God's people. Now, then if you picked an audience like uh, the audience that would have received... Um, luke's gospel well now they're in the promised land but they're still under the occupation of the romans so as you think through the audience the circum what was life like for them you should always ask that what were this what did they go through we have to be very careful not to project an image that they were living you know in more or less the ancient equivalent of windsor ontario same kind of government you know the conservatives were in power federally the liberals provincially you know, they got up every morning and ate bagels with cream cheese and drank Starbucks coffee and you know drove in vehicles. Totally different context. So you got to understand what, how can I maximize my understanding of the audience so I can see what life was like for them? Then the lights are going to go on. Okay, that's why he's speaking these words to them. And then when I get to the point where I'm trying to think of analogous examples for my audience, what my, what my audience needs to hear, it's a lot easier for me to say, okay. When we are living in exile, when, when we are oppressed, here's what God says to us. Or when we're not oppressed, but we're sort of maybe a little further away from Christian accountability than we want to, how are we going to live? So you can kind of start to make those, those jumps into application if you understand the situation of the uh, original audience. Okay, a couple more. Broadly speaking, um, we're asking the question of purpose. You can understand that in some ways this whole course is about purpose. What's the purpose of the Bible for my life? But here we're asking broadly. If we could capture it in one well-written sentence. What is the purpose of Ezra? What is the purpose of Revelation? What's the big idea for the Proverbs? This is a helpful process for you to force yourself to read the text and read the Bible so many times that you can condense the meaning of a book into one clear, concise sentence. And then off of that, you can hang several sub-themes. But what's the big idea? What's the big purpose? Now, this is going to become easier as you're answering the questions that have led up to it, but then you're going to also look for things like repetitious teachings, or teaching that seems to be like highlighted in the text, um, circumstances the writer's wrestling with. So if you looked at, let, let's just be really broad here, really broad, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. Let's work with this a little bit. What would be maybe a sentence that could capture in a nutshell the broad teaching of the entire Torah. You know, we don't have a lot of time to work on this, but just throw something out. Okay, it would have to include the word God because <laughs> he's the primary character. Laws would be would be a, a maybe a, a a good place to start. Now, is there more than law? So we probably got a there's there's we don't get into the law until we're sort of moving through it a bit, so maybe we got to even broaden it out a little bit more. God, blessings, uh, covenant, promises, expectations. These are some key words. We see, yeah, that kind of captures it. Blessings and cursings, covenant, law, God. And you take these key concepts and you'd summarize them into one sentence. You kind of work at it, work at it, refine it, refine it. And then that's going to provide with you, for you, a macro purpose as you go into the text. And you're going to take the big idea, and now you're working through the text, you're breaking it down into bite-sized pieces, bite-sized pieces. How does this passage serve this broad purpose? A lot of theologians have actually tried to um, wrestle with what's the center of the whole Old Testament. And several proposals have been made, but um, books have been written on this. If you could condense the whole Old Testament into a sentence, what would it be? And I remember years ago being in an Old Testament theology course, and we spent a lot of time on this, and w- we didn't really arrive at an answer that everybody agreed with, but I thought it was a fascinating process. What does it all boil down to? If someone says, you have you have 10 seconds, tell me what the center of the Old Testament is. Oh, I had to think about that. So you got to, you know, it's it's a difficult question, but it forces you to think. Yeah. What doesn't work? Pardon me? What doesn't work, <laughs> what, yeah, what doesn't work. yeah. Yeah. Uh, how not to live, uh, what happens when you screw up. Uh, but when when you're dealing with purpose, here's another thing to think about. If my purpose sentence is man-centered, it's probably not bang on. If it's all like heavenly pie in the sky if it's just telling me something about God, probably not, I haven't quite got there. But if somehow my purpose sentence captures something about God and something about me or my audience or us, somewhere in there, you're probably zeroing in. Because we have this image of God and us, and the Bible is somehow trying to bridge this gap or make some connections, if you will. So your purpose sentence shouldn't shouldn't be, as we say, too theocentric, nor too anthropocentric. It should be somewhere in the middle. How does God and man come together or why are we apart? Something to that effect. So purpose. Uh, One more real quick. Genre. We'll talk about some genres later on. We've mentioned them. When you're opening the Bible I'm going to study Proverbs. What's it? What is its genre, or what are its genres? Now, uh, Proverbs basically has one broad uh, genre. It's called prover- Proverbs. It's called proverbial literature. Not to be mistaken for a fortune cookie. But you're, you might be in, um, in John, and you have narrative, and you have song, or the Gospels, for instance, are called like Mary's Song, so you have at least a couple different types. Um, in the, 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 the Torah, you have narrative, you have law or legal codes, you have some poetry, right? Um, in Hebrews, you have epistle, but under that you have a lot of rhetoric, argumentative literature using ancient forms of argumentation, which are a little foreign to us at times when we read it. But understanding rhetoric a little bit is helpful in reading that. So always ask yourself, what genre am I in? Now, if you know nothing about genre, come back for the next four weeks. Mosquito. The first mosquito of the season. Let's give him a hand. Um, So understanding genre is going to be helpful for you in interpreting the Bible as well. Okay? So uh, we're going to stop there for the sake of time, and then we're going to continue on the macro and then... Get into the micro. So, next week, do I have a quiz down? Oh, do you have an assignment? Okay, you. I'm going to surprise you next week. You won't be ready for the quiz I intended, but I'll surprise you with some.